Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Henry Clay was an American statesman of the 1800s that was so vital to the survival of the Republic that it was assumed by many in his own time that the man would at some point become president. But as of this recording, we have yet to have a President Clay. So who was this man largely forgotten that the whole world might owe much to? To help us answer that question is Dr. Jason Stevens, a professor of history and political science at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. If you don't mind, first talk about his early life and how he got into politics. I actually came to uh, to Henry Clay through Abraham Lincoln uh, and his uh, his famous eulogy on Henry Clay that he delivered in Springfield in 1852, right after Henry Clay's death. I hope we can talk about that speech at, at some point as as well. Right through Lincoln, getting to know Henry Clay and studying him in his own right, I came to really uh, admire the man for a lot of a lot of different reasons. Um, one of which does have to do with with his his early life and his his rise out of obscurity to become one of the if not the most important powerful uh, statesman of his day. He's born in in Virginia right at the start of the American Revolution. He's born in in 1777. Lincoln remarks in in his eulogy about how Henry Clay and the country they started out the race of life together. The man and the, the nation um, are born right around the same time. Clay's born the, the year right after the, the Declaration of Independence. And, and one of his earliest memories is a band of, of British troops desecrating the, the graves of his, his father and his, his grandfather and threatening his, his family, threatening him and his mother. His earliest memories are uh, of the, the tyranny of, of British rule and, and the American Revolution. He, he grows up, like I said, in, in Virginia, eventually makes his way uh, westward to Kentucky, where he uh, settles in Lexington. And Kentucky had previously belonged to Virginia. It was, it was part of the territory of Virginia, but, but Virginia had ceded it to the, to the, uh, the national government after the, um, the revolution. And Clay makes his way in life at Lexington. He, uh, uh, he enters the law, has a, a prosperous, a, a flourishing law practice. He's a, a member, a longtime member of the, the Kentucky legislature. At one point in, in his uh, early adult life, he is, uh, he is appointed to fill an empty U.S. Senate seat from Kentucky um, when he's 29 years old. And uh, it's at, at that point that he, he then enters national, national politics. Yeah, that's his, his story of his, a brief story of his, his early life. So Clay was famously known at the time as one third of the great triumvirate, right? Yes. Can you explain who these other two fellows were and the relationship to Clay? And also, how did this name come about? Yeah, that's a really important point. So uh, Henry Clay, he was, as you said, he was one third of the the great triumvirate, which also included John C. Calhoun of South Carolina uh, and Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. 
And the, the way I, I explain the, the historical significance of the Great Triumvirate to my, my students, in the, uh, in the Ashbrook Center at Ashen University, uh, along the back wall, right, so directly, right, directly behind the, the lectern, we have all of the portraits of the presidents of the United States, right, from Washington up to, to Biden. What I do is I, I point out to them sort of this, this period of American history where you see these somewhat obscure presidents where, uh, <laughs> right, we, we don't know a lot about or, or, or Americans don't tend to know a lot about, for instance, um, William Henry Harrison, right. uh, Tyler, Taylor, uh, Polk, Pierce, Miller Fillmore, right? Who the heck is Miller Fillmore? <laughs> right, so roughly from Martin Van Buren up through James Buchanan, right? So in between sort of those giants, Jackson and Lincoln. I point out to my students, right, this time in American history where, you know, who the heck are these guys? You don't seem to see the qualities of statesmanship in the presidency during that long period of time in the antebellum period. So where do you see the qualities of, of statesmanship, of leadership? You see them in the Congress. You see them in the House and the Senate. You see them in particular in the great triumvirate, in Henry Clay from the West, uh, John C. Calhoun from, from the South, and Daniel Webster from the North. They serve in Congress alongside each other at, at different points in history in both the House and the Senate. All three of them, you know, also accept positions uh, in the, the executive branch. Clay, for instance, is Secretary of State uh, under, uh, under John Quincy Adams. Webster is, is Secretary of State as well at one point in his career. Uh, Calhoun, also Secretary of State, uh, also serves as Secretary of War and Vice President under John Quincy Adams and later Andrew Jackson. And these three men, they really represented the various you know, the, the three different parts of the, the nation, North, South, and, uh, and West. And it's their leadership, it's their, their statesmanship that really is at the center of American political life during the, the early 19th uh, century. Henry Clay, in particular, known as the great compromiser, Abraham Lincoln called him always the man for a crisis. There were several significant periods in this Right, during this time in American history, where right, because the, the nation is in its infancy, the Union is in danger of, of breaking apart uh, over the nullification crisis of the 1830s, over the Missouri question in 1820, and then uh, the problems that, are, that arise surrounding the, the what will eventually become the, the Compromise of 1850. At each point, the Union is, is threatened to, to break apart right, along those sectional lines between North and South. And each time Henry Clay, the great compromiser, steps forth to save the Union, uh, to hold off civil war, which was threatened at, at all three of those points in, in the 1820s, 30s, and 50s. And their, their relationship to each other, they all knew each other, they all respected each other, uh, but they were political rivals. Henry Clay starts out as a, a Republican, a Democratic Republican, during the second term of Andrew Jackson. However, Henry Clay, uh, as well as others, including Daniel Webster, take the lead on creating a new party, the Whig Party, in opposition to Jacksonian politics. Mm -hmm. And so Clay and, and Webster uh, are members of the, right, the new emerging Whig Party. 
Uh, and they're opposed by the uh, the Democratic Party. And one of the, the leaders of the, the Democratic Party at this period, of course, is John C. Calhoun from, from South Carolina. These three men, they would they would spar. They would go back and forth uh, in Congress. Even, even Clay and, and Webster, who were members of the same political party, had their differences. Clay refused to support Webster, his run for the presidency in 1836, and, and Webster probably never forgave Clay. Clay also had a bit of a temper about him. He was he was hard to, to get along with. Uh, even his friends, uh, right, would sometimes end up, you know, he'd end up on the wrong side with his with his friends because they they you know they'd be upset by something that Clay had done or said because he didn't always think before he he spoke. And Calhoun in particular, right, who had a fundamentally different understanding of the most prominent issues of the day than the other members of the Great Triumvirate, than Clay and Webster particularly in regards to the question of union and the question of slavery. So Calhoun's view of slavery is not that it was a necessary evil, but that it was a a positive good. And in regards to the union, Clay thought that the union was all well and good. In fact, he started out his career, Calhoun did, as a a nationalist. But he uh, soon developed into one of the most fiercest advocates for the, the states' rights theory, that the states had created the union and therefore the states had the right to leave the union. More than any other individual, uh, the theories, the political philosophy of Henry Clay was responsible for the arguments used uh, a decade after his death by the Southern secessionists in 1860 and 1861 to justify secession and the coming of um, of civil war. So there was, I think, a lot of severe disagreement among these three men, but they were, at the same time, I think they, they respected each other's talents and, and, uh, and qualities. In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns. One figure whose time intersects with Henry Clay's is Andrew Jackson. And it seems like no one has a real subtle opinion of the guy. Either they see him as a hero in the sense that he led the Battle of New Orleans to victory, and also that he was an advocate for a stronger democracy in that at least he's given credit for helping men who didn't have property the the right to vote. On the other side of that, he's seen as a villain especially because of his treatment of Native Americans and his advocacy of slavery. What did Clay think of Andrew Jackson? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think Jackson was sort of a, a mixed bag, according to, to Clay. Number one, right, they're, they're members of different political parties. They are political opponents. The second term of Jackson, that's where you get the emerging new Whig party that Clay will end up right, leading for the rest of his life. Right, so I think they, they have fierce political differences, right, especially over things like the National Bank. Uh, Clay was a, a fierce advocate for the, the, national, the National Bank. Jackson, of course, right, vetoes the second bank of the United States, the bank bill. Clay's American system, what was known as the American system, which rested on the National Bank, strong protective tariffs, protectionism. And an emphasis on internal improvements, right, using the power of the national government to help facilitate the building of, of, of roads, bridges, uh, and canals. These were all very important political items to, to Henry Clay. 
And Jackson was equally fierce in his opposition to those systems. And so I, I think there was there was a fundamental right, split between the uh, the two of them over the direction that they wanted to, to take the country, especially financially. However, it ought to be said that uh, I think Clay was an admirer of Jackson's fierce dedication to union. Jackson, right, although a Southerner from Tennessee. Uh, Jackson, by the way, very like, uh, like Henry Clay, had been born in Virginia and then made his way not to Kentucky, as Clay did, but to Tennessee. Jackson was a fierce advocate of union, uh, as was Henry Clay. And by the way, the, the reason why you know, Clay emphasized his, his American system, basically two reasons. He thought, first of all, that it, was, it, it did the most good for the most people, right, from the top to the bottom, but also that it helped to bind the union together. It helped to strengthen the bonds of union between the people and between the states. Jackson, although, like I said, a Southerner, is not in Calhoun's camp when it comes to right, states' rights. Uh, and nullification and secession. During the nullification crisis, for instance, of the, the early 1830s, where South Carolina threatened to veto a federal bill that they, South Carolina, thought violated the rights of and interests of their people, this leads to a, a severe test of the strength of the union, right? So you have South Carolina believing that the states have the right to veto a federal law that they don't like. And South Carolina at this time actually threatens to secede from the union if their right of nullification or interposition, as it was sometimes called, uh, basically a veto power right over federal law. If that right of the states was not recognized, they threatened to secede from the union. And John C. Calhoun is a fierce advocate of South Carolina's position, right? He's from South Carolina, and he actually resigns the vice presidency in protest, Calhoun is vice president under Jackson at this time, resigns the vice presidency and returns to South Carolina, uh, returns to the Senate uh, in, in order to right, support uh, the state's rights position. Jackson is furious. Jackson, again, right, for all of his faults, he is a very fierce defender of union. And so he rejects Calhoun's argument. He rejects the argument of the state's rights advocates who insists that the states have the right to to nullify federal law and in the last regard actually secede from the union. Jackson actually threatened to arrest uh, Calhoun uh, if uh, South Carolina right went forward in their threats of secession. Right, you can imagine this: right, a, a sitting president threatening to to arrest his vice president uh, right for um, really trying to right. <laughs> move forward with, with secession. And so Jackson threatens to stop South Carolina and anybody else who would go along with it if um, they go forward with these, these threats of secession. At the last minute, right, war is avoided. There's a compromise bill put forward uh, that actually ends up satisfying a lot of the, the, the people, the leaders of, of the, the nullification movement in, in South Carolina. And so the question of whether a state could secede, that was never really fully answered at that time, right? But civil war is avoided in large part thanks due to Jackson's leadership on the matter. I want to read you some quotes from Henry Clay, and then I'll ask you a question about them, okay? Sure. Okay. Slavery deprives the slave of the best gift of heaven. In the end, injures the master, too, by laying waste his land, enabling him to live indolently, 
and thus contracting all of the vices generated by a state of idleness. Another quote, slavery is undoubtedly a manifest violation of the rights of man. And the last quote in the longest. Pro-slavery, people, must go back to the era of our liberty and independence and muzzle the cannon which thunders its annual joyous return. They must blow out the moral lights around us and extinguish that great torch of all which America presents to a benighted world, pointing the way to their rights, their liberties, their happiness. They must penetrate the human soul and eradicate the light of reason and love of liberty. Then, and not until then, when universal darkness and despair prevail, can you perpetuate slavery and repress all sympathies and all human and benevolent efforts among freemen in behalf of the unhappy portion of our race who are doomed to bondage. Now, Clay said all of this, yet at the same time, he had slaves. Can you explain uh, Clay's complex relationship to slavery? Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you, you bring that, that up, and I, I, I'm so glad you, you shared those quotes uh, with all of us, especially that last one, that last one from Henry Clay about blowing out the moral lights around us and attempting to go back to the era of the revolution and, and muzzling the cannon that thunders its annual joyous return. Uh, that was one of uh, Lincoln's favorite lines from Henry Clay. In fact, Lincoln would use that line repeatedly in the late 1850s uh, to describe what he thought, what he, Lincoln, thought Stephen Douglas was trying to do with his 1854 Kansas-Nebraska bill. Right, Lincoln would use Clay's language after Clay had already died. Clay died in, in 1852. Kansas, Nebraska is passed in 1854. Lincoln would use Clay's words to fight Douglas and his popular sovereignty doctrine in the 1850s. Lincoln described Henry Clay as my beau ideal of a statesman. And Lincoln said of him that he loved his country partly because it was his own country, but mostly because it was a free country. And Lincoln also remarks in that, that eulogy of Clay, and yet Henry Clay was the owner of slaves, right? So we study Henry Clay's life and his statesmanship, and there's a lot to admire, right? A fierce advocate for union. He saves the country uh, from potential civil war, Lincoln says, on at least three occasions during the nullification crisis, the crisis of the 1820s in Missouri, and then coming back out of retirement in 1850 at the very end of his life uh, in order to save the Union once again by helping to pass uh, what would become known as the Compromise of 1850. And yet, despite all of this, we know that Henry Clay was also the owner of slaves. Clay, as I said before, right, uh, a Kentucky man, uh, Kentucky, a slave state. Clay, for his entire life, owned dozens of slaves. He had a, a large property. He had several hundred lands in Lexington, just south of the city, uh, at his home in Ashland. Right, His home was called Ashland. Actually, Ashland University, where I teach, and Ashland, the city in Ohio, where I teach, uh, the city is named after Henry Clay's Ashland estate there in, in Lexington. So I, 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 have, I have that connection to, uh, to Henry Clay's estate there in, in Ashland, uh, where right, you can go and visit it. 
it's not quite a hundred acres anymore. Uh, it's, it's cut down, I think to about 20 acres or something like that, maybe even less than that. But you can see this, this giant house and you can learn about Henry Clay's complicated relationship with slavery. Henry Clay, he owned slaves, as I said, throughout his life. And yet throughout his life, he also understood that slavery was a great evil, that it was an abomination. Henry Clay, always denounced slavery as a moral, social, and political evil. Uh, He was a fierce advocate of gradual emancipation, of compensated emancipation in Kentucky. He supported measures for gradual emancipation in Kentucky, which which never passed. He was also uh, a member of the American Colonialization Society. And at the time of his death in 1852, uh, the president, So Henry Clay supported colonization, right? So let's gradually free the slaves and then send them someplace else, send them back to Africa, someplace like Liberia, in order to rid ourselves of the sin of slavery. And that's how Henry Clay really thought about slavery, was that it was was a sin, that it was wrong, that it could not be justified on on moral grounds, right? So then why, why does Clay continue to own slaves? He does so, I mean, I think for the same reasons that uh, some of the American founders, right, who really believed in the principles that they articulated in the Declaration of Independence, and yet right, some of them, Thomas Jefferson, among others, continue to own slaves. It's not that they didn't see the tension between their actions and their principles. They certainly did, that their actions failed to live up to their own principles. But Jefferson, like Henry Clay, wouldn't try to justify slavery on moral grounds, but simply say, you know, it's, it's in my self-interest to own it, to own slaves, because I am financially better off with them than without them. I may end up, you know, in Jefferson's case, especially, he would have ended up being, you know, completely uh, poor and bankrupt by, right, if he had freed his slaves. This is a very complex and complicated issue. We can, we can talk a lot more about this. But I will say this, that, that Clay never was in the positive good camp that emerged in the 1820s, 1830s, which was orchestrated or originated by, once again, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun from South Carolina, right, owned slaves, looked at slavery as not a necessary evil, as Henry Clay did, but as a, a positive good, meaning it's good for the master and good for the slave. And there's no reason for the South to have to apologize for slavery because it's actually a good thing, both for the master and the slave. You notice in that one of those quotes you read from Henry Clay, Clay's view was that, no, slavery is bad, not just for the slave, but slavery is also bad for the master because Clay believed like slavery teaches human beings how to be tyrants. And there are very few of us who are sort of natural tyrants, but slavery ends up making some very good men do very bad things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Clay Clay thoroughly believed that, that there was no possibility to justify slavery. And yet he continues to to own slaves because again, it's, it's economically profitable for him. And at the end of his life, he does uh, in his will, he does, Uh, He does not free his slaves immediately, but he provides for their 
uh, right? He, he has this uh, part of his will where he says, right, any slave born after this date, by the time they reach this age, they will be free. All of that became a moot point with the coming of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. All my life, I've been making it all my life. White folks taking it, this old heart. They just breaking it. Ain't got a thing to show for what a dumb, dumb, but things get brighter. Don't get lighter. I'll keep a plugging away. So even though he was we could say uh, against slavery morally and was looking ahead to thought eventually America needed to get rid of it. At the same time, he wasn't a fan of abolitionists who were to make the uh, fine point. They wanted to outlaw slavery immediately as soon as possible. They didn't see that any good could come from gradualness. So talk about why he felt that abolitionists were not helpful. Yeah, that's a great question, right? So, uh, the abolitionist movement uh, in the in the North, Clay thought was also a threat to the maintenance of union, like slavery itself was. That the abolitionist would be content to destroy the the union and and the constitution if it meant the immediate abolition of of slavery. So you have uh, right during this period, you have you know William Lloyd Garrison, for example, who would start every speech by burning a copy of the Constitution, right, and saying to hell with the union. Yeah. We don't need the union, right? There is no union with slaveholders, no compromise with slavery, Garrison and the, the abolitionists cry. That was not Clay. By the way, it wasn't Lincoln either. Clay's view was that the union was worth preserving. It was worth preserving so long as we maintained right, that principle that all men are created equal. Slavery, we don't, we're not living up to that principle, of course, but we have to maintain that principle uh, as the basis of the union going forward. And the union, the union and the Constitution will be like those things that can help us to preserve that fundamental principle. And so Clay, unlike the abolitionists who are willing to sacrifice the union and the Constitution in order to preserve the principle of liberty, Clay is not willing to sacrifice either. He thinks we can maintain both, that the union and the principle of liberty can be maintained. They must be maintained. And so Clay is willing to make compromises with slavery, with the existence of slavery in those places where it currently exists, as the founders did. The founders, we know, made certain compromises with slavery at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in order to in order to preserve the union clay believed the same thing that compromises were necessary in order to secure the union so that slavery may eventually sometime in the future be abolished clay like lincoln believed that the founders had put slavery on the course of ultimate extinction and in order to bring that ultimate extinction about you must preserve the union as the means for doing so and so Clay, like the founders, was willing to make certain compromises with slavery in order to maintain union. So 1820 and the, the Missouri crisis, the Missouri question, which we've referenced a, a couple of times, but maybe it's, it's worth talking a little bit more about. Out of the old Louisiana territory purchased by President Jefferson in 1803, the question of the status of slavery in the territory hadn't been answered. In the Northwest Territory, 
in the ordinance of uh, 1787, the Northwest Ordinance, the, right, the, which had to do with the future states of Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, slavery was forever prohibited in the Northwest Territory. But that question had not been settled in the new Louisiana Territory. So when Missouri, the first state to apply, the first territory to apply for statehood out of the, the old Louisiana Territory, wants to come into the Union as a slave state, wants to come in with a pro-slavery constitution. Now, the problem is, is that there's this delicate balance between slave states and free states in the Senate. And if Missouri comes in as a slave state, that will give the slave power the majority. The northern states are determined to keep Missouri out of the Union. And the southern slave states are equally determined to bring her in. And once again, right, you have the threat of secession, right? Southern states actually threaten to secede unless Missouri with their slave constitution is granted statehood. Enter Henry Clay, the great compromiser, who orchestrates the compromise of 1820, which basically says, well, Missouri can can come in as a slave state. We'll bring Maine in as a free state, keeping that balance uh, in the federal government between slave and free. And as far as the rest of the Louisiana Territory purchase, we're going to establish the line at 3630, the 3630 line, where any states coming in north of that line have to come in as free states. Any states coming in south of that line may come in with or without slavery. So it allows for the extension of slavery into some places, and it allows the Missouri, the state of Missouri, to come in with its slave constitution, but it also brings in Maine and keeps slavery out of the northern portion of the Louisiana Territory Purchase, which was by far the larger part of the Louisiana Territory. And so by making certain compromises with slavery, Henry Clay is able to preserve the Union and then look forward to the eventual extirpation of slavery sometime down the line. That said, in the times that we live in currently, you know, compromise is not seen as a virtue, I don't think. And I can't say that I'm above it. Like sometimes I see things in the news or things happening around me. I get angry and think, I'm sick of compromising, you know. But, right, right. But obviously Lincoln, uh, who would eventually end slavery basically, uh, admired Clay because he was a great compromiser. From like another perspective, do you think, I can see how some critics would think that Clay was just kicking the can down the road, just delaying the inevitable. Do you think the Civil War happening when it did was better than it happening sooner? Or what's your view on Clay and his compromise? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. Clay, you know, he was known as the great compromiser, but he was never willing to compromise on the principle that slavery is wrong. Right. So he was willing to make certain accommodations in order to maintain the union. But he was never willing to compromise on the principle itself that slavery is wrong and ought to be restricted. That was, by the way, the the same policy of of Lincoln, who was willing to make certain compromises with slavery, allowing it to remain where it existed, but preventing its spread into into the territories in order to preserve union between North and South. 
And in regards to your question on right, the Civil War, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I you know I don't know. I'm not very good at these sort of what if questions of, of American history, but my my inclination is to think that if Civil War had come earlier, right, we were very close to Civil War in in 1820. We were very close to so even closer to Civil War, I would argue, in 1850, when Clay returns to Washington, comes out of retirement to help establish the the compromise of, of 1850. Without Henry Clay, you probably have disunion in 1820 or 1850. And I think that, especially in 1850, it's more likely that the South would have been successful, would have won their independence in 1850 if Civil War happened then, because for several reasons, one, the industrial capacity of the North, right, would grow significantly during the period of 1850 to 1860, which was absolutely essential for their, the North's victory in the Civil War in the 1860s, which would have been much less certain in 1850, given their industrial limitations at that time. But also, right, if Civil War happened in 1850, you would not have had Abraham Lincoln at the head of the federal government, right, whose statesmanship is absolutely essential to winning the Civil War in the 1860s. Clay, by putting off Civil War in the 1850s, gave the nation another 10 years to find Abraham Lincoln. Wow, that's great. We will sing one song for my old Kentucky home, for my old Kentucky home far away. I'm going to read another quote by Henry Clay. The greatest torch of all which America presents to a benighted world, pointing the way to their rights, their liberties, and their happiness. This is a partial quote, of course, but that sounds a whole lot like when Lincoln talked about that America was the last best hope of Earth. Yes. So you've already alluded to Lincoln being very influenced by Clay. Do you mind talking about how Clay still could see that America was a good place in spite of its problems and uh, and how Lincoln shared that view as well. Yes, absolutely. Another really, really good question. I was reading with my students the other day, uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And of course, he ends the address by talking about right, that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. And I tell my students, you know, I didn't really, I think, fully appreciate what Lincoln was saying there, right, when I first read the Gettysburg Address, when I was first studying it as an undergrad, because he ends with, right, this pronouncement of Earth, right? It's not just about saving government of, by, and for the people in the here and now for ourselves, for America, but for the Earth, for all people everywhere. If we lose self-government here, we lose it for all time. And so... You Americans, Lincoln is, is telling his audience, you hold in your hands the, the destiny of not just your nation, but of mankind. Very similar to what he said in his second annual message at the very end, at which you quoted that we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. That's the preservation, the maintenance of self-government in America 
wasn't just about for the happiness of Americans and our posterity, but for the happiness of the rest of the world for all coming time. And that is because of that, that principle, that principle of, of liberty to all, that principle that all men are created equal. As James Madison said in Federalist number 39, right? We base all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. America is the first nation in the history of the world founded upon the principle that all men are created equal. If we can't maintain that, if we destroy ourselves through civil war, if it turns out we cannot found a government and furthermore maintain a government based on that principle, then self-government is a pipe dream. And we prove to the world that human beings actually, you know, can't govern themselves without destroying themselves in the process. In order to maintain that inestimable jewel, right, we've got to maintain this government. That was Clay's view. And that's why, right, his, his, he was always, as Lincoln said, the man for a crisis. Because uh, he, he uh, despite owning slaves, right, he had, he understood the importance, the significance of the American experiment in self-government. It's worth noting, of course, Lincoln never owned slaves. Lincoln said, here's my idea of democracy. As I would never be a slave, so I would never be a master. That expresses my idea of democracy. Anything that departs from that is not democracy. And so Lincoln learned an awful lot from Henry Clay, but I also think Lincoln, right, I think in, improved a lot on, on some of um, right, Clay's deficiencies. Where Clay went wrong, I think Lincoln right, provides the, the remedy, the correction. I'll add to what you and Clay and Lincoln said. I can attest, having lived outside of the United States, that there are a lot of people are nervous when America seems to lose its way as far as uh, guaranteeing like liberty and rights for its own people. You know, it's something that almost sounds like uh, like an uber patriotic person might make up, but it's actually true that a lot of you know political dissidents, people in countries where they're oppressed, you know, they, they do look to the United States and maybe a few other countries as well uh, as beacons. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, Lincoln, that was one of the reasons Lincoln said that he hated slavery. He says, I hate it in part because it allows the other countries of the world to taunt us as hypocrites. And American history, really, I think our whole history, uh, has always been the story of the attempt to try to live up to our own principles. Mm -hmm. Have we ever perfectly right, lived up to those principles? No. But I think that the history of the United States shows the struggle and the progress we've made as one people, as Jefferson put it in the Declaration of Independence, the history of this of this one people shows the the struggle and the progress to to fully live up to those principles. That right, has always been the story of America, and Henry Clay uh, is an essential part, absolutely essential part of that of that great American story. I love you just like Lincoln loved the old red, white, and blue. He gave his life for the dear old flag.
I'm going to end it by reading a quote. This is Lincoln talking about Clay. This is, I believe, from the eulogy that you spoke about. And you're welcome to comment on it or say nothing. It's up to you. Okay? Sure. On at least three important occasions, he has quelled our civil commotions by a power and influence which belong to no other statesman of his age and times. In our last internal discord, when this union trembled to its center, in old age he left the shades of private life and gave the death blow to fraternal strife with the vigor of his earlier years in a series of sensational efforts, which in themselves would bring immortality by challenging comparison with the efforts of any statesman of any age. He exercised the demon which possessed the body politic and gave peace to a distracted land. Alas, the achievement cost him his life. He sank day by day to the tomb, his pale but noble brow bound with a triple wreath put there by a grateful country. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great quote there from from Lincoln about about Clay, and he's what Lincoln is talking about there is the compromise of, of 1850. Uh, Clay never became president, right? He 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 really desired that office. He wanted to achieve the right, the presidency, the greatest, the highest office in the land. He came close a number of times. Three times he runs for president. Three times he loses. He thinks of running even more than that. I think. Um, but Clay's strengths as a statesman always rested in the legislature, not in the executive. Um, in 1850, secessionist threats and again, this union raises its ugly head again in 1850. And Clay has retired at this point. He's in the political wilderness. He's back home, tending to his law practice, content to lead the rest of his retirement in, in obscurity. He's an old man at this point, after all. But in 1850, this union is threatened again. And this time it has to do not with the Louisiana Territory, uh, but with the territory uh, obtained by the United States as a result of the, the Mexican-American War. Uh, and what would right, happen to slavery in those territories, right? You're starting to get the theme here that every political crisis of the, the, the antebellum period has to do with the, the, the extension of slavery into the territories. And so Clay actually returns right to the political fold. He, he comes out of retirement, returns again to the Senate in order to save his country one last time. And uh, he helps to, to organize and orchestrate a series of bills um, that would, again, compromise on this issue in order to save the country and avoid civil war. So as far as uh, the territory... Um, the United States had gained from uh, from Mexico during the, the Mexican-American War, the Utah and New Mexico Territory, as far as the status of slavery there, the Compromise of 1850, right, says, well, in those territories, the people can decide for themselves whether or not they want slavery or not. But it also established the final boundaries of, of Texas as it exists today. There was a dispute over the, the boundaries of Texas. It also... Uh, implemented a stricter fugitive slave law, which the South had been clamoring for. On the North, what did the North get out of this? Well, the slave trade was abolished in Washington, D.C. Oh, and also California. California is brought in as a free state, right? So again, the compromise, each side giving up something to the other right, in order to maintain union. 
uh, Clay was a master at this. And his loss in 1852, Lincoln, and in fact, much of the rest of the country, right, saw as a great loss to the country. Because now the question is, well, now who's going to step forward to save us next time? The next time that we as a people approach a coming crisis, who now will save us that Henry Clay is dead? And Lincoln, he ends his, his eulogy by dwelling on the nature of the Almighty, talking about how, right, in the past, the Almighty has sent forth men in times of great crisis. In the past, it's been the great compromiser, Henry Clay. Who will God send next? Here's what Lincoln says. Here's how he ends his, his eulogy on Henry Clay. But Henry Clay is dead. His long and eventful life is closed. Our country is prosperous and powerful, but could it have been quite all it has been and is and is to be without Henry Clay? Such a man the times have demanded, and such in the providence of God was given us. But he is gone. Let us strive to deserve, as far as mortals may, the continued care of divine providence, trusting that in future national emergencies, he will not fail to provide us the instruments of safety and security. If you're still in an American history mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 231 a listen, where Vanderbilt University's R.J.M. Blackett talks about his book Making Freedom, The Underground Railroad and the Politics of Slavery. And there's also 172, where June Bear of the Lexington Historical Society relays for us the epic story where seemingly ordinary soldiers, farmers, radicals, and businessmen were thrown into the extraordinary circumstances that would become the first shots fired in the American Revolution. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 